One of the most disturbing situations that one can encounter in life is to be forsaken by someone. Maybe you had a friend that was close to you that in the time of great need turned their back and had nothing to do with you and you felt that sense of forsakenness. It's hard to imagine being forsaken by one's parents uh, to be disowned or uh, to be treated as unwelcomed and not have any relationship with that, that person any longer. How disturbing that must be. And I can only think about what the ramifications might be in situations such as that. But just imagine being forsaken by God. And that's what we would have to do. We'd have to imagine it. For we don't know anything at all of what that forsakenness is like. There are certain passages in Scripture that are much more deep and mysterious than others. There are portions of the Word of God that are just unfathomable, meaning that we can't get to the, to the bottoms of them. They're like deep parts of the ocean to which you're just not able to, to dive and see the ocean's bottom. There is no way to get to the bottom of this particular verse that we're going to study this morning, namely Matthew 27, verse 46. And in particular, the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Certainly they are deeper than anything that that I'm able to uh, exhaust this morning, for they are truly inexhaustible. But I believe there are lessons that we can learn from these words that are extremely important to us very applicable to us. And so this morning, I'm going to approach this verse by asking some particular questions and seeking to bring an answer to those, those questions that arise out of Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. And really, I am just focusing in on that one verse this morning. The first question I want to address is this. Was the forsakenness of Jesus real? Was the forsakenness of Jesus real? Meaning, did it correspond to reality? Was this a perception of Jesus? Did he view himself as being forsaken of God? Or was he, in fact, forsaken by his Father? There is a perceived forsakenness of God that is not real. There is a a sense that God has forsaken us when he has not. And the scriptures are filled with such examples. This forsakenness consists of doubt and is manifested in a lack of trust on our part. It is the unsettling experience of being in a situation in which it seems as though God has forsaken us. It seems as though God is not present that he is not helping us when in fact he is. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 49, verse 13, we read this. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And then he responds with these words. 
Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God has promised never to forsake his people. There may be times in which you feel as though you are forsaken, but you are not. I included in the bulletin this morning this insert entitled Footprints. Many of you are familiar with this. It's a very popular poem. I'd like to uh, read it uh, to you uh, this, this morning. Uh, Footprints. One night a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. Across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene, he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One belonged to him, and the other the Lord. When the last scene of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand. He noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints. He also noticed that it happened at the very lowest and saddest times in his life. This really bothered him, and he questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I have noticed that during the most troublesome times in my life, there is only one set of footprints. I didn't understand why, when I needed you most, you would leave me. The Lord replied, my precious, precious child, I love you, and I would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. This is a, I think, fine uh, capsulization of what the scripture teaches us about God's unwillingness to forsake us. We may feel forsaken, but at those times, he is assisting us, he is aiding us, he is putting us on his uh, back, as it were. He is carrying us all the way. That is the closest thing that we come to in being forsaken of God. However, Jesus was really forsaken by God. It was not a mere perception. It was not as though God was distanced from him and not helping him. Jesus was truly forsaken. This is evidenced by the darkness that came over the earth for a period of time. It tells us in Matthew 27, verse 45, now from the sixth hour, that would correspond to our nine o'clock in the morning. There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That would correspond to our noon, noon time. Uh, there was uh, darkness over the face of the earth. Uh, remember that as the plagues of judgment came upon Egypt in the Old Testament, one of the plagues for darkness was that that came over the land for a period of three days, Exodus 10, 21 and 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone arise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. In God's judgment, in his pouring out his wrath upon the land of Egypt, there was a period of darkness, a darkness that lasted for three days. Here in the New Testament, in association with Passover, 
that same period of time. Now there's darkness for three hours. And it's a darkness that is manifested to represent the judgment of God. The forsakenness that Jesus experienced cannot be overestimated. It was hard for Jesus to bear. Uh, A.W. Pink, in his volume on the seven sayings of the Savior on the cross, says this, and I quote, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? These are the words of unequaled pathos. They mark the climax of his sufferings. The soldiers had cruelly mocked him. They had arrayed him with the crown of thorns. They had scourged and buffeted him. They even went so far as to spit upon him and pluck off his hair. They despoiled him of his garments and put him to open shame, yet he suffered it all in silence. They pierced his hands and feet, yet he did endure the cross, despising the shame. The vulgar crowd taunted him, and the thieves which were crucified with him flung the same taunts into his face, yet he opened not his mouth. In response to all that he suffered at the hands of men, not a cry escaped his lips. But now, as the concentrated wrath of heaven descends upon him, he cries, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Surely this is a cry that ought to melt the hardest heart. But what I want to do now is focus on what does that mean? In what sense did God the Father forsake Jesus? What are we to understand by this? What are the ramifications of God the Father forsaking Jesus? I start negatively. First, what we are not to understand. Okay, This is the wrong perception. We are not to understand that there was a dissolution in the two natures of the Lord Jesus. He is truly God and man. He did not cease to be truly God and truly man at the time in which the Father deserted him. There is no time in which Jesus ceased to be the God-man. The forsakenness is not to be understood in spatial terms. It does not mean that God the Father was no longer at the cross. I think that's very important for us to understand as we, we think about the Word of God There are spatial words that are used to describe our relationship with God, but they're metaphors. They're metaphors to try to convey truths to us that are difficult to explain and comprehend. But space is a metaphor that's used to talk about our quote-unquote closeness with God, about our fellowship with him. For example, James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Where do you need to go to draw near to God? Where do you need to travel to? What ticket do you need to buy? What plane do you need to get on? Uh, What rocket ship uh, do you need to uh, be embedded in? How do you draw close to God? Well, it's not a place that you go. It's not a spatial relationship. James 4, 8 says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's talking about a moral transformation. And as you draw, make that moral transformation, you draw closer to God. You are in a deeper, more intimate fellowship with God. So in what sense does 
the forsakenness consist? What does it mean that Jesus was forsaken by God? One of the passages that helps us understand it is Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that uh, speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Psalm 22, verse 1, we have these very words recorded. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so, so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. I would submit to you there are three ways in which Jesus experienced the forsakenness of God the Father. First, God forsook Jesus in terms of comforting Jesus. Earlier in the narrative, Jesus is anticipating going to the cross. And he cries out to God. And God comforts Jesus. John 12, 27. Jesus says this. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus was comforted, wondering if he could go through this death on the cross and was asking that God would be glorified through this. And Jesus was comforted. Jesus was reassured. There was a voice that he heard from heaven that said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And Jesus heard that comforting voice. Now Jesus is hanging on the cross. There's been three hours of darkness, of judgment upon Jesus, of bearing the wrath of God. And now he cries out to God, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there's silence. There's, there's silence. There's no answer from the Father. There is no word. There is no comfort. There was no peace. There was silence. There was indifference, if you will. Secondly, God forsook Jesus in terms of aiding Jesus. Again, earlier in the narrative, just days before, Jesus is struggling in his having to suffer the cross. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus experienced and expressed a great need. He said to his disciples in Matthew 26, 38, we've looked at this passage extensively in weeks gone by. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And Jesus prayed. And he prayed earnestly. 
And he prayed fervently. And the word of God tells us this. Luke twenty two forty one and following. And he withdrew from them about him a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And now these words, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, when he was in a moment of anguish, and heartache, of suffering and mercy, he called upon the Father. And the Father sent an angel, not to deliver him, but to strengthen him, to help him through that agony, to help him through that situation, to help him through the abandonment by his disciples, to help him through all that he was experiencing and to aid him in going to the cross. He cried out unto God, and God sent an angel to minister to Jesus. Now, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Jesus is crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's silence. And there's no angel dispatched. There is no angelic being that appears beside him to aid him in his sorrows and his comfort, excuse me, and his miseries. There is no one that is sent to help him. God the Father did not assist Jesus in his sufferings. Jesus bore them alone. Jesus bore them alone. And then thirdly, God forsook Jesus in terms of fellowshipping with him. Jesus no longer had the sense of his blessedness. On various occasions, Jesus had heard the words from God the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now there are no words. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In fact, there is not an ounce of reassurance that the Father is pleased with him at all. Now he is only experiencing God's displeasure. And God's displeasure is not strong enough. For not only is he not experiencing the fact that he is pleased by God, but now he's experiencing the wrath of God. The hatred of God. The curse of God. The rejection of God. That God could not be more dissatisfied with him. God the Father did not lessen 
his wrath upon Jesus in any way. In Romans 8.32, it says, He who did not spare his son. He did not spare Jesus. That means God the Father showed him no mercy. God the Father showed him no grace. God the Father showed him no pity. God the Father did not withhold any of his displeasure upon his son. He forsook him. Not comforting him. Not aiding him. Not fellowshipping with him. Distancing himself in the sense of pouring out his displeasure as opposed to his approval. So then that makes us ask the question, why? Why did God the Father forsake Jesus? And it brings us to the heart of this question in verse 46 that is raised, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How do we understand that cry, and especially how do we understand that interrogative, why? 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 What is Jesus asking at that moment? Well, I submit to you that, first of all, the cry was not a lack of understanding on Jesus' part. He was not seeking an explanation. He wasn't expecting God to explain to him what was taking place. Jesus knew all too well what was facing him as he went to the cross. I don't have time this morning to lay out all the verses, but Jesus knew the salvation plan. He knew what it meant to die on the cross. He understood the facts. It was not a cry of understanding. But what it was, was a cry of anguish and suffering. The cry of Jesus was a cry of distress, not of distrust. Jesus had a theoretical understanding of forsakenness all along. He knew what the scriptures taught. In fact, he dreaded it in anticipation of going to the cross. He prayed, not my will, but yours be done. He didn't want to experience this. And what he dreaded the most was the forsakenness. This was the worst aspect of the cross. Being forsaken by God. He knew he was going to be forsaken by God. But what he did not know was the experiential knowledge of being forsaken. He did not know what it meant to experience forsakenness. Now he had the experiential knowledge of being forsaken. Hebrews 5.8 says this, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned what it meant to be obedient by what he suffered. Jesus comprehended obedience. Theoretically. But he really came to understand what obedience meant 
when he suffered because of that obedience on the cross. And I'll get into more of this in just a moment. But the point is, this is an experiential knowledge. It's like we know that there's a heaven. But it's nothing like being there. It's nothing like experiencing what took place. Jesus didn't know what it meant to be separated from God, the Father. He had no sense of what it was like to experience God's disapproval. God was always pleased with him. God always delighted in him. There was nothing that ever separated them from one another in any sense of that word. Jesus always delighted to do his will. Jesus never committed a single sin. He was never out of fellowship with the Father. And now he's going to go to this absolute perfect fellowship to the most absolute rejection and disapproval. Something that he had never, ever experienced. And now he is. It's, it's, and it's exclamation of anguish and distress. We too, even though we are sinful people, have no concept of what it is to be forsaken of God. The reason I started my message the way I did is because there are times we feel forsaken. But we're not. Even non-believers are not totally forsaken by God at this particular time in their experience. They still experience God's grace. The rain falls upon the just and unjust. They still experience God's mercy. They still experience God's pity. Their lives are not nearly as bad as they could be. There is no one who in this life knows what it's like to be forsaken by God. That's why we can't get to the bottom of this passage. That's why we really can't comprehend it. We don't have any experiential knowledge of being forsaken by God. But now Jesus does. But maybe we need an explanation of why Jesus was forsaken. Maybe we do need the answer as to why. So why was Jesus forsaken? Answer, the forsakenness was a punishment that he bore in our place. The scripture teaches the wages of sin is death. Not only physical, but spiritual death. Not merely natural, but essentially penal death. What is physical death? Answer, it's the separation of the soul and the spirit from the body. Death in the word of God is always separation. Physical death is separation of soul and body. Spiritual death is separation of the soul from God. Jesus died a physical death of separation of body and spirit. But Jesus also died a spiritual death, that is the separation of soul from the Father. A separation that all those who do not believe in Jesus are one day going to experience Matthew 7, 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Christ was forsaken in order to bring us to God. 1 Peter three eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 
being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ was forsaken that there might be no longer any separation between us and God. Pastor Dave said, RWR, I would love to have the praise band this morning sing that uh, he was forsaken, that we might be accepted, that wonderful chorus, but uh, we don't have the praise band this morning. But he was forsaken so that we could be forgiven, that we could be brought into a relationship with God. And Jesus accomplished our acceptance with the Father. He was forsaken so that we would not be. And the verses that follow demonstrate that proof. Look with me at verse 50 and following. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up the spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That was to symbolize that the distance between ourselves and God no longer existed. Now we had entrance into the holiest of holies. On the moment that Jesus died, miraculously, in the temple, that curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. If you remember the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was called that because in the Ark were were the Ten Commandments. They were the law of God. And if you remember on the top of the the Ark of the Covenant, it was called the Mercy Seat. And it was called the Mercy Seat because it was the place where God's wrath and God's mercy met. The wrath because the law was not kept. The mercy being the place where God would bring forgiveness. And if you remember, on the Day of Atonement, that the sacrificial blood was taken by the high priest into the most holy place and placed on top of the mercy seat to make atonement for our sin. And it was such a mystery that on the edges of that mercy seat were fashioned two angels that were looking like this, one down this way, And one down this way, according to the New Testament, to picture how the angels were looking into this and marveling and wondering what all this meant. Then we find in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is called the propitiation for our sin. Do you know what the word propitiation means in the the Greek? I wish they would have translated it this way. Mercy seat. Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus is the place where God's wrath and God's mercy meet. This is the place where Jesus shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven. He bore our forsakenness so that we could enjoy fellowship with God the Father. Let me try to address another issue one that people often raise, and that is, why did Christ bear God's wrath for three hours and not for eternity? Why was he forsaken for three hours on the cross? And that completely satisfied the justice and holiness of God against sin. Of all the things that I have read that have tried to speak to this issue, the one that I found to be the most helpful comes from a Puritan Uh, Thomas Manton. In his ninth volume, he writes this, and I quote, The damned must bear the wrath of God for all eternity because they can never satisfy the justice of God. Therefore, they must lie by it world without end. 
as one that pays a thousand pounds by a penury a week is a long time in paying, but a rich man lays it down in a heap of gold all at once. Christ made an infinite satisfaction in a finite time. He bore the wrath of God in a few hours, which would overwhelm the creature. Christ did not suffer the eternity of wrath, but only the extremity of it, intensive, not extensive. The eternity of the punishment arises from the weakness of the creature who cannot overcome this evil and get out of it. Unquote. In other words, Jesus was truly righteous. Jesus was truly holy. It is that righteousness and that holiness that satisfied the justice of Almighty God. Jesus paid the debt in full of our sin by being righteous not only in his life, but being righteous in his death, in fellowship with God. And here's the key. When forsaken by the Father, Jesus remained righteous and holy. When God was pouring out his wrath upon Jesus, not for what Jesus had done, but what we had done, Isaiah chapter 50, we, did, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. He was experiencing the wrath that we deserved. But all the time that he was experiencing the wrath that we deserved, he remained holy and righteous. The scriptures point out he did not revile. He did not curse. He did not commit one sin. But positively, Jesus, when he cries out in the misery and in the midst of his anguish, what he cries is, My God! My God! He never rejected the Father. He never rejected obedience, submission. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. The greatest obedience was to remain faithful to God when God turned his back upon Jesus. Because he understood. He knew why he was there. And he submitted to that will. And he remained faithful to God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then, of course, just before Jesus dies, he says, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Jesus knew that he was going to be approved. Jesus knew that he was going to be accepted. Jesus knew that the Father was just and righteous and holy. Jesus knew that he would be in the presence of God. Jesus said to the, 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 the thief on his side, 
Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Jesus never distrusted. Jesus never rebelled. Jesus submitted to the wrath that was poured out upon him. And that satisfied the justice, the righteousness, the holiness of God. Unredeemed, unfallen mankind, when they are banished from God, are never going to repent. They are never, ever going to acknowledge God in that submissive way. Oh, they'll bow their knee, but because they have to. Not because they want to. Jesus remained faithful to God even as God forsook him. He was faithful to the end. In this way, he was truly and supremely righteous. For he had not served God for his own benefit, but for the glory of God and the benefit of others. That is absolute pure righteousness. That is true selflessness. To seek only the glory of God and the benefit of others. And that's what Jesus did. So conclusion. What lessons can we learn from this passage? First, it teaches us of the reality of God's wrath and judgment. We live in a day and age in which even the majority of, of people that profess to be Christians don't believe in judgment. They don't believe that God's wrath is going to be poured out on people. But if there's ever a, a passage that ought to teach us the reality of judgment, it should be this one. If Jesus experiences the judgment of God, he was spared not his own son, why would we ever think that we are going to be spared judgment if we fail to believe in him? Jesus bore the punishment, the forsakenness of everyone who would believe in him. If you trust in Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will never be forsaken. That, that great promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you, is yours. If you trust in Jesus because he bore your forsakenness. But if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you bear your own forsakenness. Not now, but the time of judgment. Now is the time in which God is pleading with you. God is encouraging you to repent, to, to believe in the Lord Jesus. But there will be a day, there will be a time, and I, and I have read it for you, of coming judgment. Second, negatively, we are to learn that there is nothing worse than being forsaken by God. This is a climax of all the sufferings of Jesus. We are told in the book of Isaiah that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. There were many sorrows that Jesus bore. There were many afflictions that he went through. As you think about going to the cross, he mocked, he he 
was ridiculed, he was spit upon, he was beaten, and in all these things he remained silent. The only time he cried out was during the time of being forsaken by the Father. That was the ultimate anguish. That was the ultimate misery. That was the ultimate heartache. There is nothing worse, nothing worse than being forsaken by God. I think that's important to realize as sometimes people commit suicide with the intent of fleeing the miseries of this life. But if they don't know Christ as their Savior, whatever misery they are fleeing, they're only fleeing to a worse misery. And I can say that carte blanche. For there is nothing worse than entering a Christless eternity. Well, if that is true, then we can also say in the positive that we're to learn that the greatest blessing is fellowship with God. I opened with a call of worship this morning that may look a bit odd. Uh, turn to your, if you got your bulletin in front of you, look at this verse. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. In other words, the greatest thing that you could ever have is the knowledge that God will never leave you nor forsake you. Put it crassly, it's the best insurance policy you could ever have. It's the greatest reassurance. It's the greatest blessing. We think sometimes it's money. We think if we only had this, but the most important thing is that God will never forsake us. As a believer, that is true for all eternity. For a non-believer, that ends when judgment comes. But if that is true, if that is true, that the greatest joy is the fact that he will never leave us nor forsake us, then, practically speaking in this life, we should understand that the greatest joy and happiness we can have is to draw closer to him. To be more intimate with him. To be reassured of our relationship with him. The greatest pleasure that we can have in this life is to know that we are acceptable to God, that he is pleased with us. In eternity, the greatest joy that we will experience is when we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is knowing that you have done well and that you have been faithful as a servant of God. There will be no greater delight than to hear those words from Jesus. So how much more in this life ought we be striving to please him, to know that he delights in us as a good and faithful servant. It should be a motivation for godliness for holiness. 
This is to teach us of the great joy that there is in being with God. The joy of heaven, the joy of the new kingdom, is the fact that God is with us, that he will dwell with us, that we will see him, that we will be with him. That is the joy. And this Christmas season, we have a message. Matthew one twenty three, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. In every sense of that phrase. God is with us. His presence is here. Jesus came. God is with us. He is on our side. He is our savior. He is our deliverer. God is with us. God is with us. Again, that, that chorus that we sing. He was despised. He was forsaken. So we wouldn't have to be. That is the great truth of this passage. May we rejoice in the fellowship that we have with the Father. And may we lament. May we give thanks. May we express to Jesus our appreciation for his forsakenness by the Father for us. May God increase our understanding of that great truth that we might understand the joy of our salvation. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his being forsaken by you so that we would be brought to God. Thank you for the fellowship that we enjoy with you. Lord, may we not take lightly the great truth that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you, Lord, that you will never abandon comfort from us. You will never abandon aid from us. You will never ban fellowship from us. Lord, thank you that there is never a time that we are going to be separated from you for now and for all eternity. Thank you that Jesus Christ bore that separation. We thank you, Jesus. We praise you. We honor you. We submit to you. And we seek to be like you. Oh, Lord, help us to be faithful to you even in dark and dreary days. But we don't have to be faithful on our own. Thank you that we can cry out to God who will help us, who will strengthen us, who will be with us, who will help us to overcome. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.